This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Clyde Snow and Sessions, based in Salt Lake City with offices in Oregon and California. For over 65 years, Clyde Snow has represented clients throughout the West. Clyde Snow, serious about solutions. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect, a podcast putting water into context. I'm Emily Lewis, your host, and I'm a water attorney here in Salt Lake City, Utah, practicing creative solutions to today's and tomorrow's water problems. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect. For many of those out there in the state of Utah, you are firmly aware that we are in the midst of the legislative season. And so we had our legislative session start last week. And since water is such a hot topic in the state of Utah, there are lots of really fascinating water bills out there. And so I thought it'd be really interesting to have a colleague of mine, someone who I really enjoy working with, come and talk about some of the bills out there. And so today I have with me Jeff Gittens, and Jeff is a partner at Smith Harpinson, which is another water law firm here in the state of Utah. And I just really enjoy working with Jeff because he's got great expertise and is incredibly thoughtful. And so if you want to learn more about water, I highly recommend that you also check out Jeff's blog. So Jeff, before we kind of get into the 2023 legislative session, do you want to give our listeners a little bit of a background of kind of who you are and how you came to water? You bet. Thanks for having me on the podcast. So my introduction to water law is I grew up on a dairy farm in northern Utah in Cache Valley. In addition to having our cows, my family ran several hundred acres of irrigated farmland with alfalfa and corn and barley primarily. So I got introduced to water law by moving sprinkler pipe. My dad was the president of the irrigation company in our town for many years, and that's how I knew that water lawyers existed when I was young. They did a big project of going from a canal and ditch system to a pipe system, which encompassed a whole bunch of legal work for easements and water rights and all those things that come with a big project like that. So went to Utah State to get a degree in agribusiness. And one of my big projects there that I worked on was a project about conservation easements, which got me interested in law again. So I decided to go to law school. So I went to BYU Law School and I went with the plan of doing water law, and that's why nobody wanted to talk to me in law school. They'd go find someone more interesting to talk to and started working here at Smith Harbickson as a 1L in law school. And 18 years later, I'm still here. Nobody's told me to leave yet. I did not realize that. That is awesome. (laughs) Well, Jeff, we're in good company because I went to law school wanting to do water law too. So few (laughs) and far between, but we're the best ones. Yes. (laughs) Awesome. Well, Jeff... I have to tell the listening audience that I I do go to your blog regularly and I find it incredibly helpful and incredibly timely and you do a great job of kind of keeping it updated on really relevant things that are happening in Utah water law. And so I'm always for, you know, promoting really good, insightful sources. So I thought that uh, this would be a really good opportunity to kind of talk about your legislative preview of water bills that are coming out. I know we do a lot of water policy work in our office, just as you do. And so there's kind of, uh, it's not quite as busy as last year. Last year was kind of crazy busy, but I think there are some really interesting ones out there right now that our legislature is kind of working through. So why don't we just kind of start with some of the bills that you summarized and we can go from there. All right. Yeah, this year is less crazy than last year. You know, normally we see 10, 12 water bills or so. You know, I've been tracking water bills for a long time. You mentioned my blog. I started that in 2008. So for 15 years now, I've been watching water legislation. So I 
have a pretty good feel for how many bills there normally are. And last year was certainly an anomaly. I think last year, depending on how you count, I counted about 40 water bills last year. And luckily this year, we're back down to our 10 or 10 or 12 rather than the 40 we had last year. So a lot less to talk about, but maybe that's a good thing. Yes, I think so personally. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we can start with a continuation of, of a theme we're seeing which is funding for water conservation projects. I think the legislature and frankly, the public as a whole has come to the realization that if we want water conservation and all the good things that come from it, there has to be expenditures for that. We saw that with the secondary water metering for years, it it struggled to get off the ground and that's because the funding wasn't there. The legislature was essentially doing an unfunded mandate for water companies and cities and other water providers to foot a half billion dollars or more of water meter projects. Mm-hmm. In the last couple of years, we've seen more and more of the legislature and, and the public realizing we've got to put some dollars to make these things work. So a couple of bills that are coming up this legislative session, there's two that are quite similar. We have Senate Bill 118 by Senator Sandel and House Bill 272 by Representative Owens, both about water efficient landscaping, which is essentially xeriscaping or drought tolerant plants or whatever term you want to use, basically ripping out turf and lawn and and replacing them with plants that are use a lot less water. So Mm -hmm. they're quite similar in a lot of respects. Essentially they're setting up a system where the division of water resources can provide monetary grants to water conservancy districts who can then set up programs to pay people or help pay people to rip out their turf and put in water-wise plants. And this is just helping existing programs, right, Jeff? This isn't creating any kind of new water conservation program or any kind of new initiative, but really just putting some money behind the existing ones. Right. And it's expanding what we've had some programs for flip your strips. And so this is kind of an expansion of that but rather than just focusing on on only the park strips, expanding it to yards and other areas of taking out turf and putting in more water-wise landscaping. We had our uh, Utah Water Task Force, which is a policy body that kind of vets upcoming legislation. I think one of the reasons for Representative Owens wanted to do this is to to also kind of a a public voice that Utah is taking the hint about our need to address urban landscaping seriously and is something that we do kind of want to address and maybe get on a footing with some of our other sister states. Right. And that's why uh, his bill goes a little bit further than Sandals does in terms of stating that to qualify to get funding is the municipalities or counties where these projects would happen have to pass new laws to do certain things like saying that no new park strips or areas of grass less than eight feet in width, no putting grass in the little curb areas and parking lots that don't do anybody any good. Nobody's out playing soccer on you know, a, a four foot by 10 foot strip of grass in the middle of the Home Depot. You know, Terrible to, place to play soccer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just a lot of things like that, that, you know, as, as he said, and, and I saw the same thing you did, which is really trying to make more than just going out and ripping out existing turf, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but also providing that we don't perpetuate the problem by ripping out turf in one place and then putting turf in and park strips on new houses being built. So that's one area where his differs. 
the other difference is Sandals provides for a lien to be placed on the properties that get funding. So obviously the concern here is you get public funding to rip out the grass and put in water-wise landscaping. And three years down the road, you sell the property to somebody else and they come in and they don't like that and they want grass. And so they rip out the water-wise landscaping, put in the grass, thereby undoing everything that was done. So Sandals Bill provides for a lien, a governmental lien to be placed on the property that basically secures that if if the water-wise landscaping is torn out or and turf is put back in, that then they can uh, call on that lien and the person has to pay back the funding plus some administrative fees and interest and other things as well. So that's one additional thing that Sandals Bill has that Representative Owens' bill does not. So kind of a mix of carrots and sticks in both of these bills. Yes. Okay, so we've got kind of two good funding bills addressing our urban landscape and reducing urban turf grass here in the state of Utah. What else do we have on the docket? So we also have House Bill 217, which is another bill that funds water conservation. This is targeted at schools specifically. It's a pilot program intended to try to conserve water and energy at schools. So it provides that the State Board of Education can issue money grants to school districts or charter schools to implement programs to reduce energy use and water use. Specifically, it's targeting schools within the Great Salt Lake watershed for outdoor water conservation projects. We all know the current status of the Great Salt Lake. So with this pilot program, that's the area they want to target. And we we know that outdoor water use is usually a lot larger than indoor water use. So it's a pilot program. It's intended to sunset in 2028. But the idea is let's get some funding at this, see how it works. And my guess is if it works, then we'll see it become more of a permanent program rather than sunsetting in 2028. Okay. And that's a pretty big institutional footprint here in the state of Utah. So I think that a lot of gains probably really could be made with a bill like that. Absolutely. Okay. So we've got the three kind of conservation-minded bills. We've got the two water efficiency landscape bills and then the pilot project on schools. What else do we have going on? We have the House Bill 33 from Representative Albrecht, which is water liability. This has to do with liability for water facilities. So the there's an existing statute about this, but it specifically was targeted at ditches and canals. And so this the primary purpose of this bill is to expand the definition of what is a water facility. So rather than just being a ditch, canal, or flume, it includes dams, pipelines, culverts, fire hydrants, flumes, ditches, headgates, reservoirs, storage tanks, on and on and on, and allows some protections for water providers. It still requires them to do certain things, right? They have the requirement to operate their facilities in a way that don't cause damage. We don't want water getting out of canals and pipelines and destroying public or private property. It also clarifies what the standard of care is. And a lot of this that's being put in here has been established in case law, but never really put into statute. So the duty here is an ordinary duty of care. It's not strict liability. It also clarifies that if there are flooding or other things from a canal or ditch caused by an act of God, so an unanticipated storm event, that they're not liable for that, as well as for damage caused by water going into the facilities from somebody else. So where you see this happening a lot is a lot of ditches and canals become effectively de facto 
storm sewer systems for cities. And during rain events, a lot of water is going into these canals and ditches that is being directed there as stormwater. And if cities are going to put stormwater into canals and ditches, then they need to be responsible for it, not the canal and ditch owner. So provide some protections and clarifications on the law for those who operate water facilities. So I have to tell you, I kind of think that this is the sleeper bill of the session. So, you know, we represent a lot of canal companies at our office, as do you. And increasingly, the intersection between kind of the ex-urban development, these rural areas that are developing into bedroom communities along the Wasatch Front are increasingly bumping up against literally the canal systems that have been there for over a hundred years. And so this along with kind of like easement questions and prescriptive easements, but this, this issue of liability, I think is incredibly important. And I think having the ordinary care standard in statute is going to be very helpful going into the future. And so this is a bill that I wholeheartedly support and think is something that we as a state need to spend some attention and time on. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're seeing more and more of these. I mean, we've seen a lot of these. I think what really kicked it off was a number of years ago when you had the breach of the canal up in Logan that actually resulted in some deaths. And ever since then, there's been more and more of these bills about canal liability and safety. And this is just a continuation on that theme. And and like you said, I think this is a good addition. And in a lot of ways, it doesn't necessarily change the laws. Like I said, a lot of these things are already the law by cases, Mm -hmm. but this puts it in statute and makes it more clear and easier for courts and others to rely on when they can point to a statute rather than having to dig up a case from 1934 to see what it says. Right. And I also think in addition to kind of liability for catastrophic failures of a canal, but also subterranean seepage is a big issue, you know, as we get these homes that are transitioning from what were agricultural lands that might have benefited from having the water from an earthen canal, you know, leaching out like it would to homes with basements. It's a really interesting kind of like coming to the nuisance question a little bit, which is not, it's not a coming to the nuisance question, but similar kind of concepts about what was here first and who's liable for what. Right. Right. And I think we'll continue to see more of these because as you mentioned, as more and more development happens, it's pushing more and more against the water facilities, the canals and ditches that have been there for a long time. And we saw the bill a couple of years ago about how to handle moving water conveyances and And this is, again, a continuation on that theme. Yeah. So we've got water-related liability amendments, HB 33. What are some of the other ones that you're tracking? we got House Bill 150, which is emergency water shortage amendments. This is from Representative Albrecht again. This has to do with the governor's ability to declare short-term water shortages. And what's interesting is it's defined as a water shortage that is not caused by drought. and a lot of uncertainty about what happens in a situation where there is an emergency water shortage. How does that affect those with priority rights? How do we make sure that in extreme circumstances that there's enough water to provide drinking water to our residents while at the same time protecting the beloved priority schedule that we have of water rights? So this puts into place a procedure for the governor to declare a short-term water emergency, or they call it a temporary water shortage emergency. And before the governor can do that, he has to consult with a number of people, including the state engineer, and get information about 
you know, who would be impacted by this. And all throughout here, it talks about the interrupter, right? The person jumping line, essentially, in a water shortage emergency. They're they're back in the line in terms of priority, and they're jumping in front of a preferential user. So we have the interrupted user and the preferential user, and it talks about how compensation is paid. So if if someone gets a preference, meaning they get a jump ahead in line during this temporary water shortage, the preferential user has to pay the interrupted user for the reasonable value of the water plus crop losses plus consequential damages plus interest at 8%. If someone's not happy about the amount claimed, there's provisions in here for going to mediation, for doing arbitration with the Utah Department of Agriculture and Food. And there's a fund set up actually to help people in these circumstances. So if I'm if I'm a farmer and I have a water right and during a water shortage emergency, a city has to jump in front of me in line and, and take my water, I can apply for funding from the state to pay me. And then the state can then go get that money from the, the city who jumped in line in front of me. Mm-hmm. So interesting bill. Yeah. And actually, before we move on from this bill, in your blog, I thought you did a great job of defining a couple of the key features. So you mentioned that these are caused by man-made or natural causes other than drought. Could you talk about what the two conditions that the bill defines as satisfying this temporary water shortage emergency? Yeah. So it has to be an emergency that threatens the availability or quality of an essential water supply or threatens the economy and jeopardizes the peace, health, safety, and welfare of the public. Mm -hmm. That's the wording that the statute uses. Which I just have to say, I think this is a good conversation to be having because who knows what's going to be happening? Who knows if there could be like a algal bloom or something that ruins our water supply that we can't drink it or a catastrophic dam failure like they had a couple of years ago, the Oroville Dam that ruins our water supply. Who knows? You know, like who knows what the water supply is going to be? But I'm exceptionally curious to see how this would actually play out in real life. <laughs> yeah. Those are some pretty broad categories. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's it's pretty broad. Not I, I was like you, I was trying to brainstorm like what situations would cause this temporary water shortage because when you hear that term obviously the first thing you think of is drought and this is not drought and the ones I thought of were the same ones you thought of which were dam failure or algal blooms or some other sort of, you know, nefarious poisoning. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts on what situations might cause the governor to use this tool that he's being given here? Yeah, I don't know. I think I don't know. And I think it's kind of it's kind of a step into a dystopian world that I don't really want to imagine honestly. Like I've thought a lot about what would it look like to have a terrorist act that poisoned one of our reservoirs or a something happening where a natural condition like an algal bloom would make the water quality such that you couldn't drink it from certain sources. I mean, that's kind of what I was thinking of is 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 something that would actually affect the quality of the water opposed to the quantity of the water that would take an entire source offline and have us kind of refer on other sources. But I don't know. I mean, it could be it could be anything really. Right. So, and there's one thing that I noticed is there's also no real definition of how widespread or not the problem has to be like how hyper local can it be before the governor can do this if it's just you know the water supply for one town or one part of salt lake city is that enough for the governor to step in 
it's kind of an interesting question. It it's, leaves it pretty broad in my reading of it. Yeah. And also what is an essential water supply too? Not just like water for drinking, but like, what if you had a power plant or a private enterprise that had a big imprint on the local economy and their water supply went out for some reason, like their dam failed? I mean, could the governor use that as a reason to take over water from other users? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. I, th- I think every water user would say that their water use is essential. Yeah, exactly. And before we move on, just real quickly, would you just list the order of how water would be supplied in one of these emergencies? Yeah. So it, it sets up a preferential system. So the order would be drinking, sanitation, fire suppression, agricultural animal welfare needs, and generation of electricity. And then it specifically says that outside of those, then water for agricultural purposes takes precedence above everything else. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting. This one will be a really interesting bill in practicality. But I, I, I have to say, though, I'm not sure I love this bill as is and, and what what is happening. But I do think that, like, this is a relevant conversation to be having because One of the things I love about the prior appropriation doctrine is it prospectively allocates water in shortage. Like they do it on priority, you know, but it is a stable system from which you can make contracts, you can establish value, you kind of nip in the bud all the chaos that would happen in times of shortage. And so I think this is a relevant conversation to be having. This is an interesting way to go about it. And I'm not sure that I I haven't really processed kind of how they've structured their thinking on it, but I do think it is important to be talking about. Yeah, I agree. I think it's helpful to have the discussion. Again, it's, as you mentioned, it's a bit dystopian. It's kind of like planning your own funeral in a way. You know, one of those things you you don't want to think about, but at least it puts some framework in. I think that's better than having nothing. I agree with you. I, I still haven't processed whether this is the best way to go about it, but perhaps this is a situation where something is better than nothing, even if it's not the best. Yeah. Okay. Well, moving on from 1984. What else do we have? We have one of my favorites, which is House Bill 188, golf-related water modifications. I like golfing and I like water, and those two intersect here. So I don't know if I particularly like this bill that much, though. (laughs) The thrust of this bill, and it's a, a very short bill, basically just says anybody that owns a golf course or driving range has to report to the Division of Water Resources each year their the total amount of water that they used for their golf course, including how much was reuse water, what water sources the water came from. And then they have to publish that information on their website where people, and specifically what it says is a website to where the public is directed to find information about the golf course, such as how to schedule tee times. So I have to imagine the idea behind this is that I, I as a golfer decide I'm going to go golfing in a particular golf course and I go to schedule my tee time and suddenly there on the website I see a link to look at their water use and I think well I, I should go check that out and now I'm going to spend my time perusing water use data for the golf course and and I guess maybe deciding not to golf at golf courses that overuse water I guess is the the thrust of this I I just don't see that happening I don't think anybody well, most people can't look at water use data and really decipher it, make heads or tails of what it means, right? If I pull up mm-hmm. on the website and it says that this golf course used 223 acre feet last year, 
to 99.9% of the world, that means nothing, especially if it doesn't have context. I don't know, you know, how many acres does that, were they irrigating? Is this a golf course in St. George where they irrigate all year long versus Park City where it's a shorter irrigation season? I mean, just, I don't know. I, I'm a bit confused by this one, frankly. Yeah, I think this one is, I, I'm kind of with you on it. I mean, I also am an advocate of more transparency in our water use. And so I do think that more information about water use and getting the discussion going is helpful. So I do think that there is some elements of, you know, thinking on more in the public sphere about water use at golf courses is, is probably pretty helpful. But I, I agree with you. I think it's kind of a hard one to, to really kind of digest, digest. And, and, I, and I think too, you know, this water use is, is, is probably already reported by the water supplier, you know what I mean? Cause most water suppliers have to report their water use. And so, you right. know, I'd be curious to me, unless you're a independently owned golf course that has your own well that you'd be required to report on anyway, like, some of this information might be kind of hard to parse out for these golf courses. Like they might have a municipal connection, you know, that's part of something else. And so they probably have records of it, but. Right. And, and golf, golf courses always kind of have a target on their back just because of the sheer size of them. Right. When, mm-hmm. whenever you're talking about irrigation, first thing that comes to mind is a golf course, just because of how much grass there is. And, you know, just as an interesting aside, a couple of years ago, there was a news article uh, on one of the, major news stations here in Utah that talked about how the golf courses in Utah used 10 times more water than all the cities put together. And I thought, what in the world that, that took me about two seconds to realize that does not make sense. So actually being the water geek that I am did not take it at face value, despite all the public comments, shaming all the golf courses and everybody who golfed. And I actually went to their source of data and realized that they had just entered the heading in their spreadsheet wrong. And they had actually transpose the water use for cities with the water use for golf courses. And, oh, no. <laughs> and so they had, so I emailed the reporter and later on, you know, after a couple of days, they finally recanted it. But by then, you know, the damage was done because the new, the story had already been circulating for several days about how golf courses use 10 times more water than all the cities put together. So hmm. yeah, golf courses can, they have a target on their back whenever whenever there's a drought and there's water restrictions and somebody drives by a green golf course. I think there's an, a natural tendency to kind of clench your fist a bit. Yeah, we'll just see. Uh, we'll basically figure out how we combine HB 188 with the emergency water shortage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, go- okay. golf golf course watering is essential, right? Yeah, to those who golf, most likely. <laughs> Okay, so outside golf-related water amendments, it's kind of more of like a public notice objective. What else do we have on the water docket? We got Senate Bill 34, which is an ongoing issue. This is entitled Water Infrastructure Funding Study by Senator McKay. This one really is nothing new. This one pops up maybe every year or at least every couple years, which is should governmental entities be using property taxes to pay for water infrastructure? There are some who believe that that is inappropriate, that all water infrastructure should be funded through water rates, that if you put it in property taxes, it hides the true cost of water or spreads it over people that aren't using water or spreads it unevenly. And so originally, the way this bill was going to be presented, when Senator McKay started talking about this last fall was he was going to prohibit 
water conservancy districts, water districts, cities, and others from using property taxes to fund water infrastructure. As you might imagine, he got quite a bit of pushback from the water community. There are valid reasons why using property taxes to fund water infrastructure makes sense. A lot of these big projects we've done in Utah, the funding for those projects are based on and secured by property taxes. Mm -hmm. And so a, a lot of the water community pushed back on this. So what Senator McKay did is changed his bill instead of just going ahead and taking that power away, he has set up to have a study done on whether it is a good idea to use property tax revenue for water. So this bill specifies that the Department of Natural Resources needs to do a study about the use of property tax revenue for supplying drinking and irrigation water. And it outlines what they want them, what they want to look at. One of the interesting things I saw as I was reviewing this is it asked the report to include an analysis of policies that would ensure tax-exempt entities contribute equally to the cost of water infrastructure. That's been one of the complaints against using property taxes is you have a lot of entities who use a lot of water. We talked about schools being one, schools, religious organizations, churches, nonprofits who do not pay property taxes, but are using a significant amount of water. And so the argument there is that it's unfair to the rest of us that we're paying property taxes that are paying for the water infrastructure, but these other entities who use quite a bit of water are not paying property taxes. I think that's probably a good line of inquiry, honestly. I think, you know, knowing more about that, I think it'll be really would be interesting and just give us more data points. Yeah. So I have to tell you, I'm very happy about how this bill progressed. I'm happy how it went from an actual piece of legislation prohibiting tax or limiting taxing authority to a study, because I do think that there is a lot of public conversation about water right now, as there 100% should be. And I am a firm advocate of having the whole spectrum of, of voices in that conversation, because that's how you, you learn best and, and get to the right solution for the need. But I do think I am a little troubled by this linking taxing abilities to conservation measures, because I think that it doesn't really paint a very clear picture of what the reality of water is and the exorbitant amount of money it takes to keep these water conservancy districts running and providing municipal water. And also the fact that if we move away from a tax structure and just move to water rates, that makes water incredibly expensive for everybody. And so there's all these social justice and equity issues on it. And also it's kind of a, a you undercut your own revenue stream. <laughs> right. And so if the goal is to promote conservation and you do that by raising the, the cost of water by taking away the tax base, which you know we do need to promote conservation. I'm not against that by any means. All of a sudden, we don't have the revenue to hire the you know hire the water rights manager for the city, or hire the person who goes and like fixes the the leaking tap, you know, or you know purchase new water audit software. And so I really I get very nervous in the public discourse when we try to just directly link water rates and water consumption as the primary means of, of funding our water suppliers. Yeah, I agree with you. It's it's a very interesting discussion. You know, another point on this is. You know, I've, I've heard a lot of the water conservancy districts and others talk about that one of the reasons why doing property taxes is fair is because the actual wet water is not the only benefit that's being provided. Mm -hmm. 
right? You have, let's say, Weber Basin, who has several reservoirs. Well, those reservoirs do more than just provide water. They provide recreation. They provide flood control. They provide other benefits beyond just the wet water that makes it through the pipe and goes into the home. And so the, the public at large is benefiting from those, a lot of these projects as well, more than just getting the wet water. Yeah. And I also think it, I think it also is important to recognize too, and, and I don't mean this to say this to create preferences amongst water users or, or to put one, one, one kind of water user on, an, on a platform over the other, because that's not what I'm trying to do. But I also think that there needs to be a recognition of the reality is, is that the sophisticated water players are these folks who get tax revenue, a large, a large portion of them. And we are about to ask ourselves here in the state of Utah and across the West, some incredibly complicated questions. And we need to have professionals who have degrees in water resources, who are engineers, who are providers, who are water operators, who kind of get the brass tacks of how water gets from point A to point B engaged in that discussion. And if we don't have funding to hire them, that's really a disservice to coming up with innovative, resilient, and like effective solutions. Yep, absolutely. Water water management is getting more and more complicated and, and it takes a, a growing amount of knowledge base and, and expertise and people to be able to run these water systems the way they need, they need to be run. Yeah. Okay. So outside the water infrastructure funding study, SB 34, we've got a couple others. Which one would you like to move to next? Well, let's do Senate Bill 119. This okay. is from Senator McKell. It's per capita consumptive use. And what this is getting at is how we calculate the per person water use in Utah. It's not uncommon for us to see news articles that purport to say that Utah uses way more water per person than our neighboring states. And, you know, that's kind of a, a black mark against Utah or, or tried to be used that way. What some people have discovered is that Part of the problem is, is there is no set way to calculate how states decide and calculate the per capita water use. So, for example, Utah may use a measurement of how much water is delivered to a home, right? They look at the meter and say, well, there was 0.3 acre feet delivered to this home. A state like Nevada, on the other hand, may say, well, 0.3 was delivered, but 0.2 of the acre feet went down the sewer system was treated and released and so or reused so that doesn't count against them so that that each house only used 0.1 acre feet so you have different states using different numbers in in some ways it's not very fair to to compare numbers because they're not apples to apples but what this bill does is it sets up a system of trying to figure out per capita consumptive use i think another problem has been the data has not always been reliable you have a lot of water providers that are quite small, small towns, small community water systems. They're not very sophisticated. A lot of times they're just guessing at their water use or they're, they're not understanding the forms and they're filling them out wrong. And so that can overinflate water use or minimize it depending on how the numbers are reported. And so as I read this bill, the idea here is that the districts, water conservancy districts who are more savvy on these things, can look at numbers, find good, reliable data, use population data, and come up with hopefully better per capita water use numbers that we can actually use and rely on rather than relying on guesses or or bad data. 
they set up the definition of total water consumed to exclude or to says minus return flow. So it appears the purpose here is to, to count return flow and not, not just what water was actually delivered, but what was actually used and, and not returned. Yeah, I think this is a good discussion to have, and I think it's a really helpful one to bring in like a 2.0 or even a 3.0 discussion about water use and some nuance. And so I think, uh, I don't know if I have an actual opinion on this bill, but I think it's a, it's a good discussion to have. And, and for those who are interested more, just as a reminder to our listeners, I did have Rick Malloy on the podcast about a couple months ago, and we I interviewed him about this joint effort by Central Utah Water Conservancy District and several of the other districts getting into that data that you just talked about. Like, how do states look at per capita? And he really kind of breaks down the three or four different methods by which per capita use is quantified. And so if listeners want more information on that, I highly recommend that they go listen to that podcast. And then the Stegner Center will actually be doing a in-person presentation here in the next couple of weeks that Rick will be giving as well if people want more information. Because it is really interesting, honestly. Like it's pretty geeky, but really fascinating. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. And and again, it, it really colors public perception when we see these numbers and think, are we really that big of water hogs? But if we're calculating our numbers different than other states, then you know, then it's it's skewing the numbers and not allowing us to compare apples to apples. Yeah. And I think my takeaway from my conversation with Rick is that the reason that Las Vegas looks good, and, and I'm not taking away from any of the very progressive things that Las Vegas has done over the last 20 water conservation. But like you said, they don't count their return flows. And then, you know, we here in the state of Utah do basically an aggregate picture where it's every all every drop. It's our outdoor water, it's our indoor water, and we just divide it by the population. Like it's as mm-hmm. simple as it possibly could be. But when you kind of start using an apples to apples metric, we're not that far off from where Vegas is in some of the parts of the state so and again las vegas is a city and utah is a state (laughs) and and we all we also need the data because in order to be able to track our progress here and see if we really are getting better at conserving water we need to have accurate numbers so certainly helps in that effort as well great got a couple more but kind of honing in on it which other ones would you like to talk about today Jeff? i think the last one is probably senate bill 76 which is senator sandal which is entitled water amendments you know i i always get nervous when i see bills with very generic terms those are the ones that like make the hairs on the back of my neck stand up because i'm always worried that there's something scary in there i don't think that's the case here but really what this bill is getting at is trying to have more collaboration between cities and counties and state agencies about water planning. You know, a lot of cities are making development decisions in their their own little bubble. So what this, some of the things this bill does is when cities are preparing their general plans and when it comes to water, they want the cities to work with the Division of Water Resources to come up with plans about how their land use element and water use and preservation element, how those interact with each other. The same applies for counties. So there's just a bunch of different ways in here that are, I guess, effectively forcing these agencies on different levels to coordinate with each other and maybe see things from a different perspective. Because obviously the Division of Water Resources, view they're a big picture organization. They see water on a statewide basis, whereas a city or town sees it on a a much smaller level and and just trying to get some more coordination between these various levels so we can maximize our water conservation and and the 
decisions aren't being made in isolation. Yeah. And this is kind of a little bit of a piggyback on some work we did last year as well, right? Didn't we have a, I'm escaping the, which bill number it was, but we kind of started dipping our toe into kind of integrated land use and, and water planning last year by requiring municipalities to take water into consideration in their general plans. And this is just kind of like one step further by, I don't want to say forcing the hand, but, you know, encouraging and, and institutionalizing some of the coordination to allow that to happen. Right. And I also, you know, one thing that caught my eye is a couple of times this bill uses the term regionalization, which is not something you see a lot. But, you know, as the state continues to grow and we, we fill in, I think there it does make a lot of sense to look at regionalizing some of these water providers and working more on a regional level rather than, you know, just individual cities. And you've seen that in some places in the state you know, the Snyderville Basin Park City area being one where you have Mountain Regional who came in and took over a whole bunch of struggling small water systems and and put them all together into one much stronger, more cohesive, better run organization. And I think we're going to continue to see more of that. I know there's other conversations going on in other parts of the state with various cities, towns, and water providers about regionalizing and interconnecting and working together. So this seems to to have that eye on the future as well. Yeah, I think I read a statistic once. This one might be a little bit outdated now because our pretty substantial growth in the south end of the state might skew this a little bit. But I read a statistic once where Utah was considered by by this metric to be the most urban state in the nation, which is ironic because you don't think of Utah as being a very urban state, but it was because 90% of our population lived along the Wasatch Front in a certain square mile area. So in terms of like population per area for the state, it was like the most urban in the country, which I thought was like an interesting way to kind of cut the numbers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that certainly is. If you, I'm sure that can be the case. Mm-hmm just based on the way our, our population is. But as you've said, maybe that's changing now that we're getting more and more growth down in Southern Utah and you're seeing more efforts placed by the governor who comes from small town Utah to try to push jobs and economic development out to the more rural areas. Also with COVID, I think we've seen a lot more people who can work from home or flexible work schedules are more likely to move out I remember looking at some data from about a year ago that the county where housing went up the most in percentage terms was Sevier County. Oh, fascinating. (laughs) Which is where my sister lives. And yeah, there was a lot of people, you know, people that may have grown up there and and moved to the Wasatch Front because that's where the jobs were. And suddenly with COVID and everybody working from home, they can move back to their hometown. And, And yeah, it was the rate of increase in places like that were pretty significant. Fascinating. Okay, so I have one other one we didn't talk about, and I don't want to have, I don't think it there's it merits a, a huge conversation for now, but I do think it is, it, for me, at least in my mind, it's laid some breadcrumbs about aquifer recovery and storage projects. Mm-hmm. So this is SB 53 groundwater use amendments. Can you just give us like a really quick synopsis of kind of what this bill does? And then I kind of want to maybe throw some color at you to have a quick discussion about, because I, I think that this bill in particular may not be that big of a deal for right now, but I think it raises some larger questions about how we develop aquifer recovery and storage here in the yeah. state. Of yeah. And you may have a, a better background on this than I do. So this is Senate Bill 53 entitled Groundwater Use Amendments by Senator Vickers. 
I spent about 10 minutes trying to find the change because it, ah. it, it amended two statutes, one of which is 7314, which anybody who works in water law, they know exactly what that is. That is the non-use and abandonment forfeiture statute that we all know and love and is, is very central to a lot of things we do. And so, you know, the bill said it amended that. And I looked and looked and looked and trying to find where it amended that statute and finally i found it and moved a comma over a couple words so <laughs> apparently that was an important change though just because it was led to some confusion about because it talked about water stored in a surface reservoir and the way the comma was placed it made it sound like to store water in a surface reservoir you needed to have a groundwater recharge and recovery permit which you obviously don't so moving a comma makes a big difference in this one apparently but then it also modified 73515 about groundwater management plans, which for those who don't know, groundwater management plans are plans instituted by the state to regulate groundwater use in areas, what they call critical management areas, where water is being taken out of the aquifer faster than it's being recharged. What this bill does, the changes on the surface don't look real big, but it's just providing that in critical management areas, the use of water from a surface source to recharge an aquifer constitutes beneficial use of water. Yeah. So just and it opens up the category of people who that applies to too. So it used to be just water conservancy districts, but now it takes out that restriction. So a water association or a company could also have that exception apply to them. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So the active, don't worry, Jeff, you and I had the same exact thoughts on this. So the active language in this bill are lines 400 through 412. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so skip the first eight or 10 pages or whatever it is, and you'll yeah. find it at the very end. Yeah, so I think that on its face, this bill probably has actually honestly really limited application because we have very few critical management areas in the state of Utah right now. And I think it is designed to basically address kind of this question of who gets to do this thing. But but I do, in our, in our practice now, we've come across two aquifer recovery and storage projects. And I think that this should open up a conversation, not about 73515, which is the groundwater management plan, but 733B, so Title 73, Chapter 3B, which is the recharge and recovery act about basically ASR projects. And one of the questions we had about this is if automatically in statute putting water constitutes a beneficial use, putting water from the surface source into a groundwater source constitutes a beneficial use, there are kind of questions about, hmm, doesn't that circumvent the change application process? Like, and if it circumvents the change application process, then, you know, how are we making sure that good water rights are being used and bad water rights are being excluded because, you know, once water leaves the surface system and is put in the ground, you can't use it for other things. And so I, I do think this does queue up a conversation, maybe a little bit more of a nuanced review of our aquifer recharge and recovery permits. And so because I think that those projects, one, I think there's something that we should totally encourage because if we have a year like this year where we've got like 200% of snowpack, we need to figure out where to store that water. You know, if we're spilling our reservoirs, we need to put that water somewhere. 
But I also think that we want to make sure that we're doing it in a way that still maintains our non-impairment standards to existing water rights, make sure that our water rights being used in these projects are honed down to the nub of beneficial use, the actual consumptive component of a water right, not the full diversion value. Like, I think it's going to queue up a lot of really interesting questions for potentially next legislative session, which is kind of why I wanted to end on this one, about what our aquifer recovery and storage project statutes look like. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we're going to see that. Uh, that's really kind of one of those underdeveloped areas of law. I think I would tie that or say that's also the case with, I, I still think we're underdeveloped on water reuse, our water reuse statute. So I think both of those, we're going to see more and more changes to those as our water supply tightens and we need to use that those tools more. Right now, I don't think they're the, the statutes are up to snuff on being able to put those to their full use. Yeah, I agree with you. Well, Jeff, this has been fantastic. You did a great job, as I expected. (laughs) I wasn't worried. (laughs) Well, this is super helpful. You know, I definitely recommend those interested in water to follow Jeff's blog. I'm sure you'll update it as the legislative session goes on and, you know, things change and new bills get introduced. But other than that, we'd love to have you back on at another time to talk about another matter. But I think this is a great little primer here to get people started about the 2023 legislative session. Well, thank you. I'm always happy to talk about water. And the more I talk about water with you, the less I'll talk about it with my wife when I go home. So she'll be happy as well. Yeah, that's that also exists in our household. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, Jeff. Well, we'll see you about and I wish you well. All right. Thank you. Nothing said in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. This podcast was produced by Andrew Humphreys. Find Ripple Effect on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thank you for listening.